You are listening to episode 26 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the stories of Black Lightning and Miss America. There she is. to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, back from a hiatus and so excited to dive into more superhero origin stories. My first guest on this episode is making his third appearance on Secret Origins. He's the host of Earth Destruction Directive on Two True Freaks. He started the Hawkman blog, Being Carter Hall, and he's unapologetic in his love for Batman and the Outsiders. Secret admirers, please welcome back Mr. Luke Giaconetti. How are you, buddy? I am doing great, Ryan. Thank you very much for having me on, and, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Uh, <laughs> usually when people talk nice about me, they follow it up with, like, you need to leave or something like that. So, <laughs> uh, Well, okay, that ruins my segue. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I know that we are, at this point, well over a month removed, for, uh, but with the hiatus and everything, how is your holiday season? Holiday season was good. Uh, did uh, did some traveling, which is always fun because uh, for those who don't know, I, I have three kids so uh, that are all um, under the age of six. So uh, traveling can be a bit of a, an adventure. But uh, had a good holiday. Had a lot of uh, you know lots of toys and stuff in the house for the kids, and then a bunch for me too. So that's the way it kind of works out, you know, when you got a geek at Christmas time. Uh, but uh, but everything was good. Did you have a good holiday? I did. I, I consider the, my holiday season was pretty much Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, I, I really enjoyed the new movie. So I, I was kind of geeking out over that over the last month or so. Right. Yeah. I, I still can't believe that IG88 was BB8's dad. I mean, I <laughs> called it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, Anyway, we uh, folks, I, I do I hate to do this. It's our first show back after a long break. I wanted to start with boundless enthusiasm, but I, I can't get to that point yet. We need to talk about some sad news first, even though by now it's not really news. But listeners of the show will remember back on episode 24, I talked about the passing of our friend David Sopko, who ran a Blue Devil podcast called Shout at the Devil. Well, about a month later, while the show was on hiatus, the podcasting community suffered another devastating loss. Sean Engel. Sean appeared on Secret Origins Episode 7, talking about one of his favorite characters, Guy Gardner, with me and Chad Bokelman. 
Sadly, that was the only time I got to record with him. Uh, We did talk several times on Facebook. He was scheduled to come back on a later episode of this show. We bounced around the idea of me appearing on one of his, but of course, this never came to be. Luke, you were already slated to be my guest on this episode, but in a weird way, I'm glad that you get to be my first guest after the tragic news because you were a friend of Sean's. You guys recorded together, and I wanted to give you the chance to talk about him if you'd like. Yeah, and um, you know the Sean's passing came as, as such an absolute just shock. I mean, uh, basically uh, to give those the, the time on them that may not know it, Sean Engel, of course, was a regular over on Two True Freaks. Just one of the guys was one of the, uh, far as I'm concerned, one of the charter shows of that network, and and it's an absolutely Herculean effort uh, that Sean did to make that show. But uh, Sean was involved with so much. He was he was the um, he was on the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror with me. He was kind of the head wrangler of Who True Freaks. Uh, he was um, one of the guys working on the uh, Listen to the Prophets, which is the Deep Space Nine show. And and Sean did did so much stuff, and he did a lot of stuff behind the scenes too that you know never um, it wasn't necessarily evident just from listening to the shows. But Sean had been sick. He was in the uh, he was in the hospital. And that kind of took everybody by surprise, but we were in touch with his wife and, you know, we had said, yeah, he's going to be laid up for a bit, but, but he's getting better. He's getting better every day. And then, then great news came that Sean was home and we were all very happy and, you know, and we kept sending him messages and all that. And then just, you know, just log into Facebook one day to see his wife posted that he had died. And apparently it was, you know, just, just real sudden when he was on the mend at home and, uh, the the thing that's um, the thing that I always remember about Sean was that you know there are some people that when you talk to them they're waiting for you to shut up so they can talk. Mm-hmm. Sean listened. He really listened, and he cared about what you had to say, whether we were talking about um, you know um, Ultraman or Green Lantern or you know Colin Baker, Doctor Who, or whatever. Sean. He wanted to hear what you had to say and was interested in what you had to want to say, and and he was a he was a real good friend and uh, I, I miss him every day. Every day I think of something that I said, oh man, I should send that to Sean. You know, mm-hmm. I'll see something or I'll, I'll listen to something or or, or what have you. Uh, just recently, over on Two True Freaks episode five hundred came out, and uh, that was kind of a that was recorded over a long period of time, and you know Sean has a has a segment on that show that he recorded um, months ago. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's great to hear Sean's voice, but it's, it's, it's like getting punched in the stomach too mm-hmm. at the same time. So, you know, it's, I mean, he was just um, a guy that loved his family. Uh, I can always get Sean to talk about his family, no matter what mm-hmm. he talk about his, his two daughters and his, and his wife. And, uh, you know, it, it's, that's the thing about this, you know. Uh, ultimately, you know the the uh, the guy on the other side of the line, you know, he's got his own his own life too. You know, we're not just voices on the internet. And um, Sean will will definitely be missed. He touched so many so many lives uh, just among us on on the on the the podcasting community. Let alone all the people that he touched in his in uh, in the real world, so to speak. But uh, he was he was family. Yeah. And uh, like I said, I. 
my best goes out to uh, to his wife and his and his his daughters. And uh, like I said, I think about him every day. And you know, Sean, I, I know you're listening up there somewhere, but uh, know that you are missed and you will never be forgotten. That's that's all I can say. That's a that's a very nice thing to say. Very very true. I think if you listen to the response that the community gave out after his passing, I think everybody spoke so highly of him. I actually, when I found out the news, I went back to... um, I I still got the raw audio from all of these shows that I've recorded so far, and when I recorded the Guy Gardner segment with him, uh, Chad Bokelman was also the guest from the the Lantern cast, but there was about a 20-minute segment where Sean and I were talking before uh, Chad got on the line, and I just went back and listened to that when it was just the two of us. It wasn't anything big. We were just talking about different podcasting stuff, technical issues, things like that, but it was just nice to hear his voice and something that was private, just us. And we didn't have a whole lot of interactions. I mean, I I reached out to him to the show. I don't know if if you knew that um, one of our first conversations was before the Conway crossover podcast thing when everybody recorded for like a month uh, talk about comics written by Jerry Conway. Yes. You guys on the vault did the, the Tomb of Dracula issue one. Mm-hmm. He had mentioned that he wanted to do that, and I kind of reached out. I was like, I, I love that book. I want to do a podcast about Tomb of Dracula someday. You know, if you, if you need a guest on that, he's like, well, I was going to do it with the vault guys. If you want to be in on it, you know, I can I can have you in. And so he kind of offered that invitation to me, and I was just so busy. I was like, you know what? If you've got your own, you've already got a group of five guys doing that sh- that comic. I won't uh, I won't intrude on that. So I, yeah. I begged off it, and after it was over, I was like, God, I wish I'd had another chance to talk to him like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, and and actually, um, it, it's <laughs> it's kind of funny. You talk about being on a hiatus. The vault's been on kind of a a, a mini hiatus. For much the same, um, you know, the same reason with with the passing of Sean, but we were right in the middle of a um, um, a series where we were calling it Freak's Choice, where each member of the show got to pick what they wanted to cover. Yeah. And as part of that, we were actually going to be continuing doing Tomb of Dracula. Yeah. And so Tomb of Dracula number two, which you know we only did Tomb of Dracula number one because Sean brought it up and and we all kind of jumped at the idea, so. Yeah, so that's uh, that that's that one's going to be definitely going out to to Sean since we know how much he loved uh, the, those Marvel you know mags from that era. So, well, uh, I mean, you've already said it, so I'll just say it again, Sean, you will be missed, and, and I think we can just leave it at that. Yeah, folks, we are going to take a, a short little break here, uh, reset ourselves because we do want to dive into some Secret Origins comics uh, and get into some good stuff. So. We'll be back after a second. Let's face the facts about me and you, a love unspecified. Though I'm proud to call you Chocolate Bear, the crowd will always talk and stare. I feel exactly those feelings too, and that's why I keep them inside. Cause this bear can't bear the world's disdain. And sometimes it's easier to hide and explain our guy love. That's all it is. Guy love, he's mine, I'm his. There's nothing gay about it in our eyes. You 
ask me about this thing we share And he tenderly replies It's guy love between two guys I'm really excited for 2016. In fact, I think we should record a promo about all the changes to the Fire & Water Podcast Network happening this year. What do you think, Rob? That's a great idea. We can mention the new folks joining the network and all the shows. I can talk about how we'll continue with our Aquaman and Firestorm show. And I want to be sure to plug my movie show, The Film and Water Podcast. What about you, Ryan? Oh, I think we should definitely record a promo. I'll mention how the Secret Origins podcast is joining the Fire and Water Network. And then I'll introduce my newly relaunched shows, Give Me Those Star Wars and Power of Fishnets, The Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Sound good to you, Chris? Absolutely. I'll mention the show I record with my lovely wife, Cindy, Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. We should probably also mention the Power Records podcast Rob and I do, too. What about you, Siskoid? Well, sure. I can talk about my ensemble show, The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, and my new upcoming shows about the DC Comics crossover event, Invasion, and yes, Oh Hot Moo. Shag, you think we should mention Hero Points, the most occasional DC Heroes role-playing podcast? Sure, why not? And I can talk about Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, and mention my new upcoming show, Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. Now, here's what I'm thinking. When we record, I'm fine being the first person talking. I can explain all the changes to the Wait network. a minute, wait a minute, wait. Why do you get to start the promo? I'm just as much of a part of this as you are. It was my idea to create the Fire and Water podcast back in 2011. I should start off this promo. I kind of think it should be one of the new voices who kick off the promo. It'll shock the listener into attention if it's not Rob or Shag. Cindy and I make up two people in the network. Plus, you know, ladies first. So we should be the first people talking on the promo. Ben voyons donc. You have what? got uh, what? Okay. No, it. French cannot be the language of the Firewater Network. Stop it. You're like boys with toys. Let's just make this simple. We can tell the folks at home the Fire and Water Podcast Network is growing in 2016. Several new shows are joining the network. We'll have a new dedicated website, a Twitter account, and Facebook page. And folks will be able to subscribe to each individual show or all of them. See, now was that so hard? Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available soon through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fireandwaterpodcast.com. Seriously, Shag, you had to get the last word, didn't you? We're back. Folks, the last episode came out over two months ago, so it's entirely possible that you're listening to this episode having completely forgotten what Secret Origins is all about. No judgment. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And this is the only issue in the series that devotes an entire story to the origin of a black character. That's pretty sad, I think. Uh, that is, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I did not realize that. It, it's true. Now, Amanda Waller's story was told as part of Suicide Squad, but she didn't get like second name billing or anything. Right. Uh, Doctor Mist gets his story told in the Zatara and Zatanna story in the next issue, but he doesn't even appear on the cover. 
Um, Mal Duncan and Cyborg are sort of prominent in the Teen Titans issue, but this is the only one with a named black character in the cover. There's no Jon Stewart origin, there's no Vixen origin or Bronze Tiger. Well, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's surprising and it's not surprising because, as you say, like there's no John, John Stewart or Vixen, but of all the solo black characters, and by that I mean characters best known for their solo exploits rather than on a team, mm-hmm. or I shouldn't even say that because, frankly, Black Lightning is probably better known as an outsider than as a solo hero, but those who started out as solo heroes, how about that? Yeah. The cyborg started out as a team member. You know, Mal Duncan started out as a team member, you know? Yep. But uh, between, like, Black Lightning and Vixen, Black Lightning ran slightly longer before being canceled than Vixen, so it's not real <laughs> surprising, I guess. How did you discover the character? Did you meet him as an outsider first? Actually, I, I was introduced to uh, Black Lightning through a blogger friend of mine named Rick, uh, Rick Ricky Phillips, who... He ran a Black Lightning blog for a short while back in the uh, oh the mid two thousands, about two thousand seven or so, called Black Lightning Limited. And um, after reading his blog, I got real interested in the character and I ended up picking up about half of his original run uh, for out of the dollar bins at local shows here in um, the upstate of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I really liked the character because I, I was already a fan of Luke Cage. And I, to me, Black Lightning was kind of like, okay, well, this is DC's take on that same sort of story, you know? Yeah. In that it was a guy who, as we'll see in the story here, returned to his neighborhood and ended up becoming a hero. Yep. Now, in Luke Cage's uh, sense, it was not exactly a happy homecoming, whereas Black Lightning was very much a DC, what you'd expect more from DC in that era. He was a stand-up guy yep. trying to do the right thing. And um, and I really and I was attracted to him. And then it was around the same time that I got into the Outsiders, so it kind of dovetailed nicely. It's like, oh, I could read more about Black Lightning in in this book, along with all these other characters. And then that's that's one of the things that contributed to my seeking out and enjoyment of the Outsiders was that a character I enjoyed was already part of that team. Yeah, I, it's funny because when I did read his stories, in particular in this origin. I was reminded a little bit of Luke Cage, even though I was like, you know what, it, I think their their connection sort of speaks in uh, as a sort of microcosm of the DC-Marvel distinction that I often make, is mm-hmm. that the Marvel heroes are very much anti-heroes. And I'm not talking about the trench coat wearing shoot 'em up type of anti-hero from the 90s, but that their heroes are the, not the people you would expect to be overtly heroic. Luke Cage is an ex-con or an escaped criminal, depending on on your take. Now, wrongfully accused, wrongfully uh, incarcerated, but that was his thing. You wouldn't. Mm-hmm. He's not the prototypical hero character. Jefferson Pierce, Black Lightning. He's an Olympic athlete who goes back and becomes a public high school teacher. Yeah. Of course, as you said, this is a stand-up guy. This is who you want as your leading man. Mm-hmm. And, oh, but ultimately, yeah. they're getting into the same type of adventures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they deal with sort of the same. Uh, um, I, I, I wish I had saved this website, but there was a website I found back when I was in in the hallowed days of antiquity, back in two thousand two when I was in college. What? And uh, the and, and basically, the, the site was dev- what the guy had done is he had gone through and picked what he felt was a representative comic series for each decade of American comics. And for the 70s, he picked Luke Cage, Hero for Hire. And the term that he used, that he coined for all these sort of street-level books from the 70s, was urban surrealism. And I think that 
Luke Cage definitely had that, and Black Lightning, especially these those early books by uh, by Tony Isabella, they definitely had urban surrealism. They were trying to be modernist and tell a story about urban plight, but they were filtered through the Bronze Age. So you still had, you know, Merlin showing up at the high school to shoot arrows at him, you know, and <laughs> stuff like that, and stuff like that. So it wasn't it wasn't exactly you know mature readers. Vertigo, Max Imprint, whatever, you know, <laughs> it was street, but it was more, you know, Sesame Street than Homicide Life on the street, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking back, and I think, actually, the first time I discovered, I discovered him during his 90s series, mm. uh, when Tony Isabella came back to the book. And I, I've said it before, I was not reading a lot of DC in the 90s, other than Batman and Detective Comics. Like, I, I liked the Batman family of books. Um, but a few, like, just random books that I would pick up, like, in 1993 or 94, 95, like, was the Ray series mm-hmm. when that came out. And one of them was Black Lightning. And I think, I don't know if I would have picked it up on my own. It might have been something where I, I bought, like, a, a grab bag, like the comic store would have, you know, $10 just, like, in a in a brown paper bag, that, like, completely right. blind copies that you could get for 10 bucks or 5 bucks maybe, depending on, like, the, whatever the deal was. In it, I think, was... Black Lightning issue four, I think, is the one where it ends with him being shot up in his classroom by one of his students. Mm. And I was like, "Holy hell! Like, did, <laughs> did they just kill off this main character, like, uh, like out of costume in his civilian identity by a teenager, like a girl <laughs> with an Uzi?" So after that, I was like, "Okay, I got to get more of the story." So yeah, I got about half of that series. Yeah. Um, and after that, sort of forgot about him, but. He was always a character that I, I wanted to know more about. So, so actually, let me let me dive into his publication history a little bit. And as always, if I forget anything, please uh, help me fill in the blanks. But according to the legend, which of course these are always true, but according to the legend, DC wanted their first headlining black superhero to be a guy named the Black Bomber, whose secret identity was a white racist. And holy shit, are we all lucky that never panned out? <laughs> I uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember again. I don't. It might be on uh, Don Markstein's site, or it might have been something I saw with Tony Isabella, mm-hmm. where he they actually talked about the two scripts that were written for the Black Bomber, <laughs> and one of them had him, you know, going and saving a kid from an ex, you know exploding building, and then discovering to his shock and horror that it was a black girl that he saved, and he's like. <laughs> It's like, oh my god! <laughs> like, no, no, this is wrong. <laughs> Thankfully, cooler heads prevailed. I oh, think. <laughs> Thankfully, blessedly, DC gave the green light to Tony Isabella, um, and he fashioned their first black hero. Uh, now, Isabella had been working at Marvel Comics for about five years at this point, um, but he quit after his editor, who was Jim Shooter, naturally. Uh, changed the ending to a ghostwriter story that Isabella had been developing for, like, years. Uh, So Isabella, along with the artist Trevor Von Eden, who I think this was his first work, created Black Lightning. Black Lightning debuted in Black Lightning Issue 1, which came out in 1977. The bi-monthly series only lasted 11 issues, after which Black Lightning appeared in backup strips in World's Finest Comics and Detective Comics during the glorious Dollar Issue era. In 1979, Black Lightning guest appeared in Justice League of America issues 173 and 174. At the end of the issues, Black Lightning is offered membership with the team 
and he turns them down. Yep. Which probably wasn't the best idea from a publishing standpoint because he didn't appear much between 1980 and 1983. <laughs> but he eventually returned with a team in Batman and the Outsiders. And throughout the 80s, he served with the Outsiders in all of that book's various incarnations. In 1995, Tony Isabella returned to the character in a second Black Lightning series that lasted 13 issues this time. And after that, he appeared sporadically. Eventually, he did become a member of the Justice League of America when the series was relaunched post-Infinite Crisis. And in the New 52, he co-starred with Blue Devil in a short run in DC Universe Presents. About the only things I would add is that in between his time um, after the the second Black Lightning series Mm -hmm. and kind of the revamping of the Justice League, the Brad Metzler Justice League, when he ended up becoming a member, uh, he actually appeared a lot, I say a lot, fairly frequently as a supporting character in the books written by um, Judd Winnick. Because in the new version of The Outsiders, uh, Volume 3 of The Outsiders, Judd Winnick introduced a character of Thunder, who was one of his daughters. That's right. That's right. And so Jefferson Pierce appeared as a supporting character. He was, when Lex Luthor was the president of the United States, he was the Secretary of Education. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Which is hilarious. <laughs> At one point, no, they, they, he said, well, don't, don't you realize you have a superhero as your second su- secretary of education? And he said, yeah, my secret identity is pretty much the worst kept secret in the world. <laughs> so what was funny in the, is that he was portrayed as being older in those Outsiders books when Judd Winnick was writing them. But then got his age kind of rolled back a little bit when he started you know, working with the Justice League and then the, um, the Outsiders again. Uh, after um, after leaving the Justice League when Pete Tomasi took over on Outsiders. He was back in that... Um, we talked about this with Halo when they kind of brought back the core, uh-huh. air quotes up to the mic, uh, Outsiders, Black Lightning rejoined with them, and he was there with that book until it ended right before Flashpoint. Noteworthy thing about that was uh, there was a storyline in that where basically it was the Outsiders Civil War because uh, Geoforce had gone back to Markovia and yep. about half the team supported him and half the team... Uh, opposed him and black lightning was kind of the de facto leader of the anti crew and there is a one of uh, this is a complete shoot one of my favorite single issues of the 2000s was a issue long throwdown between geoforce and black lightning it's written by dan didio it's drawn by keith giffen doing his best jack kirby (laughs) it is just them beating the holy hell out of each other for 22 pages it is it is it is it is everything you'd expect like if Jack Kirby was to do that fight. Nice. It's it's pretty cool. But yeah, uh, you know, um, and and of course, Black Lightning's probably most famous appearance in mainstream media is being played by Sinbad <laughs> on Saturday Night Live at the sketch about the few, the wake after the death of Superman, where he's shoving a uh, shrimp cocktail into his pants. Tony Isabella loved that scene, apparently, and was so delighted to see his character make it on Saturday Night Live. I remember that he keeps shooting red lasers at Rod Schneider playing Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. <laughs> Are you Black Vulcan? I am Black Vulcan! I'm Black Lightning! <laughs> and and suppose, speaking of Black Vulcan, supposedly... Black Vulcan was created as a way for them to use Black Lightning on Super Friends without having to pay Tony Isabella uh, royalties. That is the story. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I've heard. 
every appearance of Black Lightning in all the series, it always says created by Tony Isabella. He's got that like that credit where it always gives him creator credit in all of these appearances. Yep. So it wouldn't surprise me if when he did it, he, he signed a deal where he gets that kind of uh, that paycheck and they didn't want to pay him for the cartoons. Yeah. So And there there's also a it was a running joke in trying to remember if this was part of the new 52 or if this was like the the post infinite crisis DCU after the uh the milestone characters were kind of folded in mm-hmm. that apparently he gets asked very frequently if he's Static's dad. Yeah. And it turns out that Static is a huge Black Lightning fanboy. <laughs> and had like a poster of Black Lightning up in his room. And uh, he also has a very memorable scene in Infinite Crisis, speaking of Infinite Crisis, where uh, Black Lightning is very well equipped with his electrical powers to fight the Omax. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Terrific, because of his technology, is invisible to the Omax. So they actually are the two-man team that infiltrates Alexander Luthor's tuning fork base. Mm-hmm. And they have a conversation where he says, did you really call yourself Black Lightning? And he goes, do you really call yourself Mr. Terrific? <laughs> and he says that, you know, back then I was the only one. I wanted people to know who they were dealing with. So. <laughs> oh, love it. Love it. Well, let, uh, let us get into this actual secret origin of the character. Secret Origins, issue 26, had a cover date of May 1988. The actual on-sale date was January 19th, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. The cover by Kevin Nolan shows Black Lightning and the other feature, Miss America, up against a brick wall with some guns pointed at them. What do you think of this cover? Uh, I'm not a. I'm not really a big fan. It. It. The. The, the layout is kind of plain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really don't like Black Lightning's hair. It looks like he's got a pompadour. And if we're going to do, I mean, if this is supposed to represent Black Lightning at the beginning of his career, he should have an afro. Right. And if it's supposed to be Black Lightning at the time of publication, he should have had shorter hair. So it's. It's. I mean, he. The costume looks good, but the pose looks kind of stiff. Uh, I, I. I'm not a. I'm not sure if physics just work different as far as skirts in the DCU, but I don't know how Miss America's costume works there. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a, I mean, it's, it's, it's a striking pose and I like the, the coloring and stuff, but I'm not a fan of this cover. What, what do you think, Ryan? I'm sort of in the same way where if I looked at this really quickly, just like at a glance, I would say, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. Like what you say, it's like, it's striking. I like the poses. I kind of like the Nolan's line work and everything. I like Miss America and how the skirt is kind of going up. We're seeing a whole lot of legs. She looks good. Um, Black Lightning looks powerful. He looks like he's ready to throw down. I do like the color contrast. I like the signs above their heads and the whole, the way Secret Origins looks like it's graffiti tagged on the wall. But it's one of the, the more you look at it, like the more, if you actually start to study it, it falls apart. Yeah. And you start to see more of those things that, mm, no. And it's like, um... No, sorry. Yeah, and you're right. Like his hair shouldn't look like that. It's not the worst cover, but of the series has had, but it's it doesn't hold up to really intense scrutiny. So yeah. All right. Are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of Black Lightning? Yeah. Let's let's get right into it. It is a dark and stormy night as Jefferson Pierce in his new apartment talks on the phone with his ex-wife Lynn, talking about his new. Uh, the new school that he's teaching at and that the new principal was not exactly thrilled to find out that the generous grant from the Wayne Foundation meant that they had to bring him on as a teacher. But as he looks out the window into the rainy night after reminiscing while looking at a photo of his teammates, the Outsiders, 
Jefferson starts to think back to his origins in his early days as Black Lightning. And uh, just to note, this is adapted from the story in Black Lightning number one, also by Tony Isabella. So Metropolis, several years prior, Jefferson Pierce, Olympic athlete and gold medalist, has uh, pulled a welcome back cotter and gone back to his high school trying to make a difference in his neighborhood. And as he's getting the tour from the principal, he sees a uh, drug pusher shaking down one of the students. And Jefferson Pierce, being a stand-up kind of guy, doesn't take too kindly to this as he punches the guy right in the stomach and then throws his head into a locker and uh, takes the drugs and crumbles them up and kicks the uh, the pusher out, saying if he ever if he ever sees him hanging around the school again, he'll fold him in half and mail him to the cops. And then he sends the student to the infirmary to wait for him, and the principal is very impressed with his actions. And then that afternoon, while looking over the new gymnasium that was built by a LexCorp grant, uh, he runs into the new uh, big man on campus, Earl Clifford, who's a basketball wizard, a track star, and so forth. And you also meet uh, his girlfriend, who's got a purple hair thing going on in the version I'm looking at. And uh, the kid's kind of your typical high school athlete, thinks he's uh, hot stuff and that his you-know-what doesn't stink. And Pierce is not really uh, interested in it. And as the two get ready to play a little uh, one-on-one, uh, the ball is actually shot and three gangsters have come in, and they are not happy with the new teacher having roughed up one of their pushers uh, in the school and sending him packing. And so they're there to break some legs and uh, get some people to get in line. What they don't realize is that neither Earl nor Jefferson are all that interested in getting the crap beat out of them. And so uh, a fight quickly ensues, and Jefferson puts his Olympic-level athleticism to good use as he levels all of the uh, the gangsters and sends them packing Earl seems to uh, have come out a little shaky, but he's okay, and uh, suddenly has a newfound respect for Mr. Pierce. That night at uh, his apartment over the uh, tailor shop of Peter Gamby, uh, Jefferson talks to uh, Mr. Gamby about his day and about that you know, he's uh, not sure what kind of difference he can make here, and that Peter Gamby tells him that, well, you know, the police don't have much presence here in Suicide Slum. And uh, so they talk about that maybe he can make a difference, and that when he came back, he uh, hoped things had changed, but nothing had, and it's still the same place it was, but somebody has to try to make things better. We then cut to Midtown Metropolis and the office of one Mr. Tobias Whale. And Whale is the head of the criminal organization known as the 100, which is the kind of a mafia that oh, that is made up of the 100 most powerful gangs in Metropolis and the entire United States, for that matter. And Mr. Whale is the... Uh, the one over top of all of it, and he is not happy. And he's very angry that they let themselves get roughed up by a school teacher. And he says that you need to teach him a lesson. And you let the school teacher make the hundred look like a pack of spineless jellyfish. And he's not happy about that. So he tells them to go uh, not just attack Jefferson Pierce and make him a martyr, but to take out the people that he cares about. And so Whale's goons go out and they go looking for Earl. And they're going to go rough him up. But uh, as they're chasing him down, they actually run him down in the street. And leave him for dead. And then the next day, Earl's girlfriend grabs Jefferson and runs to the gym. And we find Earl's body stuffed through the hoop on the basketball court. Jefferson is, he is distraught. Saying that they, telling Mr. Peter Gamby, they butchered him, Peter, because of me. And Gamby, he says that him and Jefferson go back a long time. And that Jefferson's mom and him lived above his apartment for a long time. And that he has something for him and that he knows that he can make a difference. 
And so he gets out the black lightning suit that he's created, which will allow Pierce to have the power to fight back and to defend his neighborhood and his school and his students. And so once dressed in the uniform, which gives him his powers, I'll talk about that afterwards, that initially, originally the powers came from the costume itself. Mm. He's able to fight back and beat back the gangsters and the pushers and all of Whale's goons. And then him and Whale end up getting, uh, you know, going down into each other directly as we get a recap of some of his early adventures in his book, including a sequence where Whale sends a hitman to uh, assassinate Black Lightning, and Peter Gamby actually dives in front of him, taking the bullet meant for him, giving him that tragic origin that he has to have. You know, Jefferson Pierce grows into his role as Black Lightning, doing everything he can to stop the 100 and to save Suicide Slum. But that was all a bit in the past, and now Jefferson, back in the present, is talking to Lynn and says that he has to get ready for school. He's got a lot of stuff he's got to get doing. And he says he's just a little lonely. And uh, he name checks uh, Sapphire, Stag, and Halo, which was a nice touch. And as he looks out the window, he sees two pushers talking about how uh, a bus or a raid went down and some guys got arrested, but they'll be out and they're relocating their headquarters and that the beat goes on. Who's going to stop it? And then in the alleyway, we see Black Lightning. And that's the end. Yes, it is. I mean, that's, that's pretty fun, I think. It's a great story, and uh, I, I wanted to mention the artist on this issue is Mr. Greg Brooks, mm. who listeners of this podcast might remember Siskoid and I talked about him, I think, or it might have come out in the, the listener feedback section after episode five, because after this issue, Greg Brooks went on to illustrate a four-issue Crimson Avenger miniseries mm. written by Roy Thomas. I could see that. I could see that from his art here. I'm not real familiar with his work. Well, that's because he didn't do a whole lot, because after that Crimson Avengers miniseries, he murdered his wife and went to jail. Oh, okay. (laughs) Which which is why I don't think DC has ever collected any of his work and put it in trade. Yeah, you Um, see, in in the comics world, that'll generally get you less work. It's not like the NFL, well, that'll get you a contract (laughs) kind of thing, you know. So, yeah, but heinous... Crimes aside, the art is really good. I mean, I like yep. it. It's clean. It's he's got a good style. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because it, his style is in some ways very different from Trevor Von Eden, mm-hmm. but in certain panels, it really looks like Von Eden. I mean, I, I have the issue that uh, is adapted here, and it's the story is. Ve- I mean, there's a few details that are different, but the story is is. I mean, it's Tony Isabel writing both of them, so the story is really unchanged. Right. So it's odd to see it taken or a take on it by two different artists. And so it's always interesting where things diverge and where they intersect. I love the, it's, it's such a memorable panel. I mean, they used it to great effect because it, it's a panel that gets repeated a lot, but the shot of Earl hang, like hanging yeah. on a basketball hoop, uh, it's such a horrific image. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, in context, there's a little bit of a crucifixion angle to it. There's a little bit of a hanged man or lynching, yeah. Even though it's not really that in context, but you just—I mean, it's—it's it's a black kid hanging up on a pole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it, but it's—it's it's gruesome and it's gory, and and Brooks does a, a terrific job of capturing the the threat of it here and yeah, and how horrific and, the crime is supposed to be. And it, and it's and that's straight out of Black Lightning number one. Yep. That's not some modern modernist addition to it. Right. It was it was Zach gruesome back back in the day too, about a dec about a decade earlier. It's it's harsh. 
Mm-hmm. And that this is what I was referring to kind of earlier with the urban surrealism. I mean, Isabella is looking at this as the actual evils in the inner city with the, the drug pushers and, you know, suicide slum being this place where even the cops in Metropolis don't go. Right. You know, kind of like we they all we always hear about that in um, when we talk about urban blight in cities like Detroit mm-hmm. or Baltimore, that there are neighborhoods that the police don't even go there. Oh, that that was suicide slum. And the fact that it was in Metropolis. Yeah was always a thing. This isn't Gotham City. You know, this is Metropolis. This is this great shining city on the hill. And that was, that kind of ties in, Ryan, with what you were talking about earlier, why Black Lightning turned down membership in the Justice League. Because ultimately what he says is like, well, that's, I'm not here to, you know, save the world. I'm here to, to, to help people, mm-hmm. to help the little person. And he said, you guys in the Justice League don't do that. Yeah, and you think about, like, why would Metropolis need another hero besides Superman? And it's like, mm-hmm. well, these are the real-world, everyday problems that affect this this community. I, I, I don't want to say you don't expect Superman to deal with, but you don't want Superman dealing with that. You want Superman dealing with alien invasions. Mm-hmm. That's what you read a Superman comic for. Yeah. And I think they kind of capture that dynamic on the Daredevil Netflix TV show. Mm-hmm. That they recognize that, yeah, he's operating in the same city that the Avengers saved, but the Avengers aren't going to come and take down Wilson Fisk. That's not on their radar. Yeah. They're dealing with much bigger things. Mm-hmm. But when you live in Hell's Kitchen or you live in the Suicide Slum, there isn't anything bigger than Kingpin or Tobias Whale. Yep. That, that is as big as the danger gets, so you need mm. this hero to take that. So it's just it, you manage the expectations for what the hero can accomplish, and I think they do it really, really well. It works yeah. for this kind of story. And, and one thing that was, was kind of interesting about that is that in the comics, Tobias Whale like addresses that. You know, he, he talks about that. It's like we operate on a low enough level that Superman's not going to bother with us. Because he knows that, you know, that this is something that he, that Superman would leave to the police. And Superman's too busy fighting, you know, giant robots or whatever in Midtown to worry about us pushing drugs and suicide. And another, and um, um, Cully Hamner and uh, who was it? It was uh, Jan, uh, Jen Van Meter and Cully Hammer did a Black year Lightning one's... Year One. Yep. Which further um, uh, uh, expanded on this and gave us all some of the history the, of this neighborhood that used to be called Southside, but got the nickname of Suicide back when it started really going downhill mm-hmm. uh, during kind of the gen- a generation before this, when Black Lightning or essentially Jefferson Pierce's father was a community uh, guy, a community organizer guy trying to help the community, ended up being killed on a contract for hire by Peter Gamby who was a criminal and then later reformed and went straight and got, uh, you know, was eventually forgiven by both uh, Jefferson and Jefferson's mom for his role in, uh, in murdering his dad. So it, you know, again, it, it's, it's, I said before that compared to the kind of stories uh, that were being told with Luke Cage, this was sort of the definite DC version of it, but you can see kind of the connective tissue. They both were dealing with, again, the, the really trying to address the, the urban plight, the kind of real world evils on the low level, the low street level, as we call it nowadays, that again, you wouldn't, you don't expect to see that in action comics with Superman. You mm-hmm. know, you, you expect to see him fighting inner gang with their apocalyptic weapons, not the 100 with, you know, pistols and <laughs> machine guns. I mean, when, when the 100 goes and hires a supervillain, like I said, they hire Merlin. Yeah. <laughs> not exactly. Again, somebody in Superman's level. Take nothing away from Merlin, you know. I mean, obviously the dude's doing okay for himself if you watch Arrow, so. I opened this book expecting to get to Sir with love. 
that's, certainly that that's not what we got. Um, you touched upon the the changing state of his powers. Again, when I first discovered the character in the 90s, at that point, his electricity-based powers were really internalized, mm-hmm. which I think, did that happen in Invasion? Yeah, because well, I think it I think it finally happened for like for reals in Invasion because at the beginning of Outsiders, he's having kind of a crisis where he can't use his powers anymore. Hmm. And that's why he's in Markovia at in Outsiders number 1. He's there to see a specialist who's going to help him. And that's how he gets caught up in, you know, Baron Bedlam and and all that and ends up joining the team. The explanation that finally came down was that and this might this was this was post-crisis that this came down, was that he was a metahuman, but he kind of repressed it. And putting the suit on brought it to the forefront, uh, but he you know, kind of was always in denial and saying, oh, it's the suit, it's the suit, it's the suit, when what it did was the suit kind of reawakened the abilities for him. And then finally he just you know, accepted it and, and moved to uh, having them be internalized, so... Yeah. And I'm pretty sure in the new 52, they they avoided all of that. He just had the you know he just had the his regular power set like you'd expect. So right, I I, uh, I, I like him having to push the button on his belt. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing with him having to push the button on his belt ties in with his roommate with Peter Gamby mm-hmm. because now if you hear the name Peter Gamby and say hey that sounds familiar, you're probably thinking of Peter Gamby's brother Paul Gamby, who was the tailor to the Rogues over in Flash. Mm-hmm. Because the rogues had their own tailor because DC Comics. <laughs> so, uh, so, so the idea, I guess, that both of them became tailors who could make costumes that involved uh, superpowers, you know, <laughs> this kind of runs in the family business, I guess. So, um, it, 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 uh, I don't know. I, I, I kind of like it better with them being internalized because, you know, it, I don't know. The characters are getting their powers from their costumes. Unless you're somebody like Iron Man, where Tony's real power really is his brain. Mm-hmm. It kind of sets itself up for cliched stories where it's like, oh, no, I don't have any power or whatever. You know, yeah. it's, they, and they did plenty of those in Iron Man with them having to recharge at the at the most inopportune moment or whatnot. But, you know, ultimately, it, it whether his powers are internalized or not has never been a huge thing. He's never been like one of these if you'll pardon the pun, like one of these outsider characters who mm-hmm. feels he doesn't belong with reality or what, uh, or with, with normal society. Uh, Jefferson's a fairly well-adjusted guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he, like I said, he, he went to college, he became an Olympian, he was a champion, and he's back home. Like I said, he's doing the, the welcome back Cotter thing. He's there to do good in the old neighborhood, you know? So his, wherever his powers come from, to me, is secondary more in this case to his persona and his goals. Okay, but can we at least both agree that the best part of his costume is the fact that originally his mask included the afro? Mm-hmm. The, af- yep. the afro was not natural. It was built the into the mask. afro was not natural. And it was and part of the disguise. It was part of the disguise. That's why if you look like on page three on the splash page, you can see the mask runs right up to the afro because he would put them mm-hmm. on as one piece. Yep. Because he had short hair. It was like a hat. <laughs> you know, and, and again, it's kind of weird the way the connective tissue works. One of the reasons why Luke Cage wore the tiara is because he said it put kept his hair out of his face because he was growing his hair longer to mm-hmm. change his look. So that's why Luke had a bit of an afro in the early days, too, because that's what you did in the 70s, apparently. If you were a black superhero, you had an afro. 
I mean, it's a great look. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I've heard people dump on this costume. And yeah, the, the, the open up to the, to the naval look, I mean, is a 70s look. But it's it's very it's a great costume with the black and the blue and the and the the, the yellow. Yeah, it's it's really a nice. I mean, very very much a DC style costume. You wouldn't see somebody in Marvel. I mean, the closest is like somebody like like the Living Lightning or something, I guess. But this is a, a DC costume for sure. But he looks really good. I've always liked this costume. I've always had a soft spot. It it does look kind of dated now with the high collar and the uh, yeah the opening down to the navel. Yeah. But I think if you tweak those elements just a little bit, I mean, again, I mean, you have to expect that this is part of the dated costume because of the afro and everything. The whole the wide sleeves and everything. It's it's part of the look. But I don't care. I like it. I think it yeah. works for the character. Mm-hmm. I think so too. Yeah. Um, the final page of the story where you've got these two pushers outside talking about how they're going to, you know, they, they've been raided, but they're going to put their stuff back together and get their drugs on the street. And we end with just this glint of uh, Black Lightning powering up in the alley behind them. He's going to take them out. Uh, there, It's basically one shot repeated over five panels with just the characters, and they're walking in front of Bar's Bakery. Yep. Now, because tell us which bar that is a, refer- a I, reference to. I, it can only be Mike W. Barr, or as I refer to him, Mike W. Barr, that magnificent bastard, <laughs> who's the creator of The Outsiders, and after Tony Isabella, the writer probably best associated with Black Lightning, so I thought that was a nice touch. Whether I'm not sure you know whether that came from the 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 inking or if that was in the script or what, but that that really made me smile because the two I mean like I said the two writers who to me define Black Lightning are you know Tony Isabella and Mike W Barr so that was a, a nice touch. I would have liked like you know a joke for Aparo somewhere in there as well considering how much Jim Aparo contributed to the look of Black Lightning in the Outsider days. Mm-hmm. And there there's a great Outsiders gag here. It's on uh, page two where he pulls out the framed picture of yep. the Outsiders, and it's the cover, of course, to Batman the Outsiders number one. Yep. So which makes you wonder, who took that picture? <laughs> you know? It's got to be Baron Bedlam. Just yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, they were just, just happened to be breaking through a wall at the same time we all took this picture. It's like, it's it's a good thing that none of those bricks hit the camera or anything. No? He was he was live tweeting the, yeah. <laughs> the invasion of Markovia by all these guys. Hashtag save Markovia. <laughs> We did our part. We made a hashtag. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> Hasht- hacktivists, uh, or what do they call them? Uh, hashtivists uh, existed even in the 80s, apparently. Apparently. Uh, other than Isabella and Barr, I, I give a little bit of a shout-out to Denny O'Neill. Certainly did mm-hmm. a lot with the character after. Because yeah. he wrote the final issue of Black Lightning, the series, I think. Uh, yeah, he one. did. And then he picked him up in uh, the backups, like uh, from uh, World's Finest and such. Any other thoughts uh, about this story? Uh, the, the thing is, I liked this issue. I didn't like this one as much as either the Halo one that we covered or the Hawkman one that we covered. The Halo one, I thought, gave a lot of insight into a character that at the time was just kind of awakening to having her own personality. And so it, it works very well as a, a standalone Halo story. Whereas uh, in this case, I, I think um, Isabella really saw Black Lightning as like someone who could be a pillar of the DC universe, mm-hmm. you know, up there with Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman as one of the, the main guys. And so his story is in a lot of ways very iconic. I, I think it's designed to be that you you could you mentioned the, the Netflix Daredevil series. You could almost do this verbatim for a Black Lightning TV series. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm, I'm surprised this was never a movie. Honestly, like this yeah. could have been like in the '90s, even like when you didn't need a really big budget for this character. I'm like they could have done like instead of the Steel movie, instead of Meteor Man or something, they could have done this as a movie. They, totally, totally. I mean, th- there's no reason they couldn't do this on Arrow or Flash. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the de- it would be more. The superpowers would put it more on Flash, but the subject matter puts it more on Arrow. So I'm not sure where you would would do that. But look, I mean, the sequence here on page four and five, where he's walking through the school and we see the pusher and the and the kid, and then on, on page five when he throws the guy's head into the locker so hard his face explodes. <laughs> it's like that. That I mean, th- this looks cinematic, but yeah. the, the, but I mean, the story is very. And, and the word iconic, I think it's thrown around a lot, but I think you know what you mean. It's almost archetypical. Yep. It's trying close. to be this, this very, you know, this uh, uh, classic sort of story. There's not a ton of emotion because a lot of this is about, and, and this is going to sound like a criticism, but I don't mean it that way. It's kind of like tropes. You know, the, the, the golden boy coming home to make good and, uh, you know, the, the neighborhood has gotten worse and now he's got to take things into his own hands. I mean, this could be a movie starring Steven Seagal. Sure. Or, or Lyndon Ashby, depending on whether you're um, in the theaters or direct-to-video. But then compared to the Hawkman story, with that one, Roy Thomas kind of gave a lot of kind of embellishment and kind of building up Gardner Fox's Golden Age story, you know? Whereas Isabella's writing this not that long after he wrote the original. So yes. it, it's, it, it's, it's almost like he just gets a chance to tell the same story again, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's good, but it's like, well, you know, it's like, I, I probably for the same price I could probably get Black Lightning number one and go read that and get his origin. Right. So, but I, I mean I I enjoy this a lot. I, like I said, the the art is is good. I, I think it's it's cool that uh, you know Earl Clifford's dating Nicki Minaj. I thought that was <laughs> was very interesting. The like I said the 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 little I, I think it's odd that we don't get really any action. The the part of the story in where when it was presented in Black Lightning number one, where Black Lightning then goes into action and starts fighting. Is kind of covered in a montage. Yeah, yeah. This really is just his origin. So I think Isabella was taking the the purpose of this book very literally and very uh, a, a very tight definition of the secret origin of Black Lightning, and that's exactly what we get. Yeah, it's that was kind of my one criticism with this is the, he did such a good job of making me really like Jefferson Pierce and really liking the situation. And I love this character, and I love the world that he is in now with Suicide Slum and trying to take care of these students. And then you just crammed. You're right. It's just it's just montage. We don't see Black Lightning do stuff mm-hmm. in this story. Yeah. And it's so it made me want to read more Black Lightning. Yeah. But I was like, ah, ah, you could have given me a little bit more with him in costume. Yeah. And and actually, it's it's funny that you you say that because it it, it definitely made me want to go break out. You know, out of my back issue bins of, of Black Lightning. Well, but, the uh, original the original series, I think all eleven issues are going to be collected finally in one trade paperback coming yep. out within like a month or two. Which yep, actually, that, when I first heard about that, that made me think. You mentioned it. I was like, I wonder if they would introduce him on the Arrow or Flash because mm-hmm. it seems like he'd be ripe for that world. Oh yeah, and, and you that you you stole my point because that's where I was going with that. All I'll add is that. In that trade paperback, it also includes issue 12, which was originally part of Cancelled Comics Cavalcade. Mm-hmm. And then I want to say saw print, at least in part, as a backup in, world, in issue of World's Finest. 
So even though I have the entire uh, Explosion era 1970s series, I, I ordered that trade paperback. Yep. One, so I could just have it in one thing, but also to get that canceled comics cavalcade issue. I did the same. Th- I actually ended up doing something similar with Steel. I'm a big fan of, of Steel was another DC implosion title. And the final issue of that ended up as the middle sequence of, I think it's issues five and six of All-Star Squadron, where they have like a flashback sequence for Steel. So I ended up, those are the only two issues of All-Star Squadron I own. And uh, right now, if, uh, if, if they're hearing this, uh, um, Mike Bailey and Scott Gardner are groaning and shaking their fist at their MP3 players. That those are the only two issues of All-Star Squadron I own. So. <laughs> But uh, no, but I mean, th- this was, uh, like I said, I hadn't read this one. And I know you and I had talked off the air about this one after we did the Halo show. Yep. But I really liked it because, like I said, it, it was nice to see Isabella get a chance kind of to tell his same story again. And the, the art, like you said, you mentioned, um, oh, I just blanked on his name, the, the artist doing uh, the series going on to do Crimson Avenger. Yeah. And, Brooks, uh, yeah. Yeah, Greg Brooks. And I could totally see that from some of these panels, like with Earl getting run down in the street. With his, I mean, looks like he just gets his head smashed in by the headlamp mm-hmm. of the car. I mean, that. I mean, this is a code book. That's pretty. That's pretty nasty. And then, as we said, Earl then stuffed into the uh, basketball goal, giving you know. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. It, it's clearly an allegory for you know a lynched man um, in the uh, you know during the civil rights movement or even earlier than that, being strung up to, and left to die. It's 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 horrific. And but putting it in, first off, putting it in a modern context makes it that much worse. And then putting it in a school makes it really, it's 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 it, it pisses you off, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. It's like this was a kid, and you ran him down on the street like an animal, and then hung him up like a trophy to get at this other guy instead of actually a, a, you know taking him on head on like a man. Yeah, you know you had to kill a kid, so they got whatever's coming to them when they got you know. You shove a cattle prod far enough up a horse's ass, he'll deal cards. It's just a matter of voltage, you know? Or in this case, a lightning bolt. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I did want to mention, because I went back and I reread a lot of his stories, like the, the world's finest backups, and I went back and reread the, uh, the issues of Justice League of America, where he is given the chance to be the team's first African-American member. Now, does, um, isn't the villain in that the rat catcher or yes, something? Yes, it is. Oh, my God. Um, or he's... Yeah. No, his it's name like, it's is... like Despero, Amazo, Ratcatcher. I think his name is Regulator, but he can <laughs> he controls rats. He can speak to rats and other weird vermin animals. Oh God! What, where is he in the Justice League uh, DC Cinematic Universe? Zack Snyder. We demand it. Yeah. He'll, he'll be there eventually. Um, but I went back. I reread those issues and. Oh boy, because you basically got Green Arrow, who's already met Black Lightning at that point, sponsoring him because Green Arrow is the bleeding heart who wants a black guy on the team. Yeah. And you've got Flash as the opposition, and they're saying, well, Flash isn't really being racist. He's just pissed off because his wife was murdered recently. Yeah. <laughs> and they're having these conversations. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, you know, as will happen when you're a superhero, I guess. And the, the funny thing is, I'm, I'm reading this kind of, this scene between Green Arrow and Flash fighting over whether or not Black Lightning should be the... T- it was like, both of these guys sound terrible. It's like, no matter which <laughs> argument you say, like, whether it's racism or tokenism, both of these guys are like, nope, we cannot have yep. this conversation. Turn around, walk away. This yeah. can't happen. And, and- and part of me has got to think that's part of why 
you know, Pierce is like, I don't know if I want to be a part of this mess. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like I got one dude who uh, is is really unstable and his, ang- and his argument against me being here. And this other dude seems way too interested in having having me on the team. So I don't know if I want to mess with either of those. <laughs> it's it's hard. It was it was a different time. I mean, around this time, and and you probably um you, you probably seen this in in the uh, back matter in a lot of DC books. They had kind of a reader survey, mm-hmm. and one of the questions was, "What kind of care people do you want to hear stories about?" And one of the check mark marked answers was black people. I think I think it said black and not colored. I really hope it said, <laughs> said black and not colored. Let's cross our but. I just, you know, just that much worse. But you know, it, I mean, that was it, that that was the um, that was the culture at the time. You know, it was uh, uh, it, it was it was kind of a, I don't know. It's it's hard to say because I didn't live through it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was born in 1980, so this stuff is was history to me when when I was learning about comics. Yeah. But it's this idea that they wanted to, you know, a, whether through. Um, I don't know, uh, mercantile means or less mercantile means, whether he wanted to address that market and, you know, make uh, heroes of, of, other, of other races. And so that's why we got characters like Luke Cage and Black Lightning. Uh, you know, I mean, there's um, – the, the one I always look at is, you know, Jack Kirby was a guy that he was – Kirby was a uh, – it's weird because we always think of Kirby as – a lot of people do as this crotchety old guy, you know. Because he seemed to be old even when he was young. Oh, you yeah. Know? yeah. Kirby was born like at like 55, I think. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely was. <laughs> he came out with the shaggy eyebrows and everything. And but, a cigar. Uh, and just yeah. <laughs> but, but he was a guy, especially after he moved out to California, that he was – and if you read The New Gods, you can see this. He was obsessed with, with what the youth were thinking and wanted to understand youth culture. And Jack and Roz would, would – uh, his studio was open. So that kids from like Caltech and some of the other schools would come and visit with him and talk art and philosophy and the cosmos and everything else. And, you know, I always thought that was one of the reasons why one of DC's very first black heroes was Viking the Black over in the Forever People as part of the New Gods book. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, he's called Viking the Black. But, you know, it's 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 just his name. I mean, he's not from Earth, so he can't he's not Viking the African American, you know, right, he's from right. New Genesis. But uh but he included and and he made Viking not a uh caricature or a stereotype. Viking was, you know, blisteringly intelligent, he was sarcastic, he questioned Mark Moonrider, he was the only one that could talk to the mother box. He was a very important and very integral character to that book. So I think you had creators that wanted to have a better representation and wanted heroes that weren't just, you know, this, the same as everybody else. And I think that, you know, whether, whether – you know, you, you can call it tokenism. You can call it, you know, well, we got to have this many characters that aren't white or whatever. I, I think it was, it was at least a, a – it was coming from a good motivation. Mm-hmm. You know, whether they succeeded or not, I think that's something you look to on a case-to-case basis. But they, they were coming from a uh, a place, I think, that honestly wanted to just grow what uh, what the, the field of heroes looked like. And I, th- and I think that's a, a fair enough uh, motivation. Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay. Well, did you have any other recommended readings for the character Black Lightning? Uh, well, I, I would definitely, like I said, I would definitely pick up that trade paperback that's coming out. It's it's twelve issues for twenty bucks. I'm sorry, that's a great value, and these are these are very fun Bronze Age books. You'll just uh, anyone. I think if you're listening to the Secret Origins podcast, 
you'll be of the right mindset that you will blast through those probably in like one or two sittings. That's how fun they are. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of Black Lightning that's been collected. In fact, I think that's pretty much his first collected edition. I think so. And I think it comes out in March or April. So it 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 was in it was in the I want to say it might be April because it's in this month's uh, like previews catalog. Okay. The January uh, as we're recording this, this is the end of January 2016. It's in this month's previews catalog. If, if you want to see him in the Outsiders, of course, as I said with Halo, uh, Showcase presents Batman: The Outsiders is a great volume. If they, or if you like that early 80s DC vibe, you know, Barr does it in spades. And Lightning doesn't get as much attention as some of the other characters, but he does get his moments in that series. And uh, there, there's some good stuff with him, especially him and Metamorpho. They have kind of a uh, an interesting relationship because they're the two established heroes on the team. And so they have kind of a different take on things from, you know, like Katana and Halo and Geoforce. So that yeah. that's worth getting. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and the 90s series is good, too. It's hard to find because I think it I don't think it had very, a very big print run. No, I think I, I checked, and the first six issues, so about the first half, is available digitally on Comixology for mm. a digital reader. That series is on. Like again, it's just the first half. Hopefully, they'll complete their run. And yeah, maybe if there's maybe if uh, enough people purchase the first trade, the that second series will get a will get a printing too. Yeah, and I'm I don't I'm trying to remember if year one was collected or not, but. Uh, even if you got to seek out the single issues, I would I heartily recommend that because Van Meter and Hamner did a, an excellent job with that. Yep. That series was actually nominated for a couple of Glyph Awards. Yep. Uh, the Glyph Awards is a awards um, that uh, is about comics made for and by people of color, and uh, so it was a it, it it's it was a very critically acclaimed series, and it's a very I said I enjoyed the heck out of that one. It got almost no attention when it was released. Yep. But uh, but it's it's definitely worth picking up, and you can find that one cheap. A lot of those, I find a lot of those books that came out between Infinite Crisis and Flashpoint. I think a lot of retailers are just kind of they just don't want them around, so they put them out cheap in the back <laughs> issue bits. So it's it's like every Marvel story ever now since like uh, New Avengers started. It's like oh, this is the next big thing, you know. Forget that old thing. This is the next new thing, it's right? Like, and it's in the dollar bin. So. <laughs> But before let, – let me not go down that avenue. But no, um, there's not a whole lot of collected Black Lightning, but his books are not super expensive. So if you're interested in checking them out, I think you can find some stuff at a good price. All right, great. Well, Luke, thank you very much for being my guest again on the Secret Origins podcast. Where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? Well, my, my main home is over on the Two True Freaks Network at twotruefreaks.com. My uh, my own show is called Earth Destruction Directive, which is a show about Japanese giant monsters or daikaiju, and I cover all aspects of daikaiju culture, including film, TV show, toys, video games, comic books, the whole nine. Uh, right now, we've just started the uh, I just finished up the Marvel Shogun Warriors series, and we're t- started talking about the Marvel Godzilla series. And that's going to be a lot of fun. And we also uh, have some great movies and shows that we're going to talk about coming up. I'm also one of the co-hosts over on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And uh, we, that's the horror show over there. I do that with uh, some of the other freaks. Uh, my brother, Jason, has recently joined the show as, uh, as another host on that one. And we talk about all sorts of things of horror. We just recently finished up covering both the entire Friday the 13th franchise as well as the Phantasm franchise. And uh, so we're doing some intermezzo shows, and then we've got some uh, some new stuff coming in the new year. 
And I every now and again update my Hawkman blog, Being Carter Hall, uh, where I take a look at DC's Winged Wonders across all iterations of the Hawks. And you can find that at beingcarterhall.blogspot.com. Uh, thank you very much one more time. It was great to have you on the show. Oh, it's great to be on here. I, I, this book, like I said, this uh, I've seen a couple of Secret Origins and Back Issue Bins and stuff, but it's just such a blast because I get a chance to read these stories that I've never read before, and they're about characters that I, that I love. So, I mean, that's win-win. And then I get to come in on this show and, and talk to you and be part of this, uh, this podcast, which is a fantastic show. So thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate you extending the offer once again. Thank you very much, man. Listeners, don't go away because we'll be back in a minute with the origin of Miss America. Is Steve Harvey on the show? <laughs> Star Wars, give me those stars. I'm Ryan Daly, and welcome to... And I'm the Irredeemable Shag. Dude, what are you doing? What? Give me those Star Wars as my show. Well, you're part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, so it's really our show. But if you show up on the promo, people will think you're the co-host. I'm not. No, the show will have rotating guests. You just took that idea from my Justice League International podcast. You took that idea from my Secret Origins podcast. And you took that idea from Dead Both and Spies. That was my podcast. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I sang the theme song with you. So? So, technically, I appear on every episode. I'm part of the foundation of this new Star Wars show. That's... That's true. So, you want to take this from the top, or what? I'm Ryan Daly. Join me and a galaxy of guest stars on Give Me Those... <coughs> including the irredeemable Shag, whose voice you will technically hear on every episode, on Give Me Those Star Wars. The official Star Wars show of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes and Stitcher and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. We're back. My next guest really loves him some Golden Age superheroes. He stepped in at the very last minute to help me cover the origin of Our Man back in episode 16, and as punishment for his good deed, I asked him to come back for the origin of Miss America. It's Al Gerding, who you might know better as Van Z. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Thanks, Ryan. Ryan, this is no punishment. I am honored to be here, especially with Miss America 
Because by the time this episode is over, I think she's going to have a lot more fans. Well, you know what? That, that's a tall order, but I've uh, just talking to you. I know how much you like the character, and if anybody can sell more people on Miss America, I think you can. Looking at the character's publication history really quickly, Miss America debuted in the first issue of Military Comics, which was published by Quality in the summer of 1941. Created by artist Elmer Wexler, with maybe some help from the book's editor Gil Fox, Miss America went on to appear in the first seven issues of Military Comics. And after that, nothing for a very long time. She did eventually return in, you guessed it, All-Star Squadron, written by Roy Thomas. And throughout the 1980s, Thomas would use her in his trifecta of love letters to the 1940s, All-Star Squadron, Infinity Incorporated, and Young All-Stars. And that's it. That's all there is to her publication history, I think, until more modern incarnations of the Freedom Fighters. Uh, This character had seven appearances in the Golden Age, amounting to a total of 37 pages of story. So, Al, why do you like Miss America so much? The first time I seen her was in All-Star Comics, and and, uh, those issues of uh, 31, 32 were... They have the all-star meeting, and uh, Uncle Sam appears with the original Freedom Fighters. She only appears in a couple panels, and in one of those panels, she gets blown up by uh, Japanese Zeros. But then she does go on. You do see a glimpse of her in Young All-Star. You do see uh, some more of her in Infinity, Inc. So, like you said, just little bits and pieces. Of course, I want to know more about her, so I did track down the Golden Age stories. And she is a victim of uh, bad timing because once... First of all, when she started out, she she was overpowered, and then she didn't have a real cool costume. She basically wore a dress. But four months into her adventures, a competitor, DC Comics, announced Wonder Woman's going to come out. So I think if you're going to have a symbol of America that's female, Wonder Woman was a lot more intriguing to readers. So she didn't last long after that. Yeah, they gave her the costume sort of midway through her run. And I I looked at those comics, and it looked like the costume was pretty inconsistent. Like, even in the last three issues, they never really had a handle on exactly what colors go where. Maybe that was poor coloring reproduction, but maybe they just weren't sure about the character. Maybe they got nervous because those first three or four episodes or issues when she's wearing her red dress... And then, right then, they start advertising about Wonder Woman, so maybe they're thinking they had to spice it up a little bit. And you're right, it was inconsistent. It was it changed almost every issue. And talking about this character's powers... Oh, I have a list of what she accomplishes. <laughs> she, she is by far, with the exception of maybe the Spectre, the most powerful superhero or superheroine in, in, that you're going to cover in Secret Origins. I mean, just the list of things that she can do. And then later on, like you said, in the modern comics, there's even more. So, I mean, uh, she rivals uh, Firestorm. Sorry, Shag. She's better than him because she also has a, a version of super strength and she can fly later on. And uh, Molecule Man in the Marvel comics, she uh, seems to have power similar to him. Basically, that's what... That's what kind of killed her back in the gold age, golden age, too. She was overpowered, so they really don't have anything to do with her. Yeah, it felt very, looking at those old military comics issues, it felt very fly-by-the-seat-of-their-pants. What do we want her to do right now? Uh, she's just going to turn these guys into birds. I don't want to take too long, but I'll read off. I have a list of what she has done. Please do. You, we, we need to front-load this, this episode. Explain what this character is capable of. 
She can uh, turn trees into air, turn men into animals. She, uh, in one issue, she holds on to a bomb fragment, and a picture of the villain's hideout materializes in her head. She can turn men into plants and trees. She can enlarge objects like she, uh, she has with guns and hats. She shrinks a gorilla in one issue. She makes a chair grow hands that unties her because she's tied to the chair. Uh, she can make things fly out of people's hands. She can make wax dummies come to life. She rides on arrows. Now, I don't know if she shrunk herself to ride in the, on the arrow in that issue or she enlarged it. Uh, she can make artwork come to life. She can heat up objects by pointing at them. Uh, she turned a submarine into a dove. Uh, she caught up to an oncoming missile, and then she jumped on it and turned it around, so there has to be some kind of super speed involved. She turns planes into chickens, steel into rubber. Uh, she caught some bullets and turned them into molten metal, throws that metal at men, and then it transforms the men into toy soldiers. So there's a whole mishmash of powers right there. <laughs> And then, like I said, later on in the modern era, you see that she has some form of uh, super strength and she can fly. So she, I mean, that's a whole lot to put up with. So, I think just no rules. And I think that uh, aside from not really having a costumed identity for the character for the longest time, I think the problem was just there wasn't, I mean, we give Superman crap for being overpowered, but this is whatever you can think of, even weird, bizarre stuff. I mean, you mentioned like the Spectre who can do all of this stuff, but we kind of, I guess, sort of accept that because of his origin tied to being, like, sort of given these gifts by God. Her origin, she's given these, but, well, I don't want to spoil it for because we're going to get into that, so. Do you want to tell our wonderful secret admirers the secret origin of Miss America? Sure, I can recap it. I do apologize for the length of this origin, but in Secret Origins comic book, it seems to encompass maybe the first four or five issues of the Golden Age, so it is a lengthy tale. But uh, I'll start to recap. Our story begins way back in 1941 on Bedloe's Island, which is the home of Statue of Liberty, the Statue of Liberty, where Joan Dale, reporter for the Daily Stars, to meet an inside source regarding a lead on a top-secret experiment. Surrounded by sightseers, Joan rests on the park bench where she is to meet her secret informant. As Joan ponders the state of the ongoing war in Europe and America's impending involvement, she is unable to stay awake and falls into a trance-like sleep. As she drifts off, she dreams that the Statue of Liberty comes alive and the spirit of Lady Liberty speaks to her. She tells Joan that she has been watching her, and she has chosen her to bestow the power to transmute one substance into another, and she is to use this power to help America preserve its freedom. After Joan swears to do as Lady Liberty requests, she awakens with a headache and ponders the doozy of a daydream she just has. She gestures towards a tree, and she thinks how great it would be to have powers that her dream described. Just then, the tree she pointed at vanished as it was turned to air. Joan boards the ferry to leave the island and comes across a couple of Nazi sympathizers roughing up an old man. Joan gestures towards the men and finds herself astonished that she transforms the thugs into doves. The birds fly off the ferry, only to be transformed back into the men that they were, causing them to fall into the water. No one on the ferry knows exactly what just happened except the old man that she saved, who claims Joan is the real Miss America, the spirit of freedom. The story references that Joan will be called Miss America three or four more times in the ensuing weeks as she fights crime and saboteurs, but the story picks back up, showing Joan entering an FBI office of Agent Jeff Healy, whom she met on one of her previous adventures. 
Healy had offered Adona a job with the FBI, a job which she assumed was to be an agent, but discovers Healy only had meant for her to be a secretary. Having already quit her reporter job, she accepts the position. As she leaves the office, she decides to keep her powers under wraps for the time being, or at least until she finds out how she got them. Stopping by a newsstand, she notices an article in a newspaper regarding uh, Ramon and his Latin rhythm makers and their decision to play only at military bases for the duration of the war. Joan is suspicious of this headline, as she has met Ramon before, and she had thought him to be more fascist than patriotic. Long story short, Joan snoops around Ramon's dressing room that night, gets caught, overhears talk of a planned attack the following day, and gets knocked out by the thugs. The Nazis lock Joan in a chest, throw her off a backwoods bridge. As the chest sinks into the water, it is transformed into seaweed, and Joan emerges wearing the familiar Miss America costume, her subconscious having transformed her civilian clothes as she became worked up listening to her captors plan the attack. The next afternoon, Ramon and his band are playing at a nearby military base using the sound of their music to activate a squadron of robot bombers to target the base. As the robot planes blow up the tanks and endanger the people below, Joan appears in her new costume, complete with a mask, and saves the day by destroying the planes with her powers. Ramon pulls a gun on her, and Joan finds out that her powers have been depleted and handles Ramon with an expertly performed judo throw. Because at that time, you know, all reporters and secretaries, they're very proficient at judo. Is the story over? Not quite. A few months later, in December, Joan is walking home as she discovers she is being stalked by an old man who yells, Joan Dale, I want you. Which generally is not a good idea to do that to a lady. I have done that before. How'd that go? Uh, Not well. (laughs) The man known as Uncle Sam steps out of the shadows and claims he needs Miss America's help. This having been the second spirit of America that she has met in the past year, it does not seem odd to her, and she willingly agrees to help him. Sam explains that the Justice Society of America is missing, and he has brought the others to help in his mission. The others consist of Neon the Unknown, Magno, the Red Torpedo, the Invisible Hood, and Our Man. Sam explains that he learned that there will be a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, So the heroes travel via Uncle Sam's powers to the Pacific to head off the attack. This is also shown in All-Star Squadron 32. Check it out. It's a good issue. They encounter the first wave of Japanese Zeros, and they use their powers to handle them with ease. However, one flaming Zero sneaks up behind our heroes and suicide bombs the sub that they are standing on, decimating the team. As our heroes lay unconscious or dead, a Japanese midget sub appears and decides to take our man captive as he is the most well-known and they have no room for anyone else. A few hours later, an American sub surfaces with a mysterious figure with the name of Agent X aboard, as Agent X instructs the uh, sub's crew to load the bodies of Miss America and Uncle Sam, the only heroes they can find, he remarks his superiors have plans for. The sub's destination is Bedloe's Island, back where this story started, or rather under Bedloe's Island, The sub enters a secret underground lair where we meet the leader of the top secret government project, and I hope I get this name right, Professor Madzutsky. We never do find out in this story what the government agents do with Uncle Sam, but Agent X was specifically sent by Madzutsky to retrieve Miss America. The issue then flashes back six months prior, where it was Agent X who lures Joan to the island with the intent of using her as a replacement guinea pig in one of Madzertsky's experiments utilizing a machine called a molecular condenser. Project M, as the group is, is known, 
hopes to develop super soldiers to help win the war. That sounds familiar. The prior test subject had suffered a heart attack and died, which left the professor and Agent X scrambling for a replacement. Agent X thought he had been luring a male reporter named John Dale, but instead it was Joan who responded to the summons. Too late to back out of the abduction, Agent X and his crew gash Joan, which knocks her out. They then strap her to Mazursky's machine. All involved seem to have a slight moral issue with using a woman for the experiment, but they are more concerned about gathering results, so they turn the machine on. A giant bolt of energy surges through Joan, and the professor naturally assumes that the experiment had failed, and they just destroyed Joan's mind. So what does this government agency do? They drop her off in the same park bench that she was before, leaving her basically what they believe brain dead, and they try to justify their actions saying, it's all for America. Now they revert back to present day, where Agent X and Mazursky are standing over Miss America's comatose body as they rescued her from the Pacific, and they discuss how they now have a second chance to study and duplicate her powers for the war effort. And this story does continue in Young All-Stars. Okay. There's a lot going on with that story. There's a lot going on in the story, and the number of WTF moments that occurred to me as I'm reading this story far outweighs any other in the series so far. I I, I give credit to Roy Thomas because he found an interesting and compelling way of making sense of her really stupid, nonsensical origin from Military Comics issue one. Well, I think Roy kind of was backed into a corner because I've been reading up a lot on that era. And Roy, at one time, when the crisis occurred and, and the Golden Age Wonder Woman was no more, mm-hmm. they, they needed a replacement not only for her activities in the Golden Age, but also as a mother for the modern or Infinity Incorporated Fury. Mm-hmm. Roy, at first, wanted to use a character by the name of Moon Girl from EC Comics. And I don't know much about Moon Girl, but he had attempted to get his uh, editor or publisher to obtain the rights for that character. Because he was going to use her, in the article I read, he was going to use her in Young All-Stars. So I don't know if she was meant as a replacement for Golden Age Fury or as a replacement for uh, basically the mother of, I, I don't know exactly what his plans were. But anyway, since they did not obtain those rights, that created the Golden Age Fury. Instead of having Golden Age Fury take over Wonder Woman's spot in the Adventures, he brought back Miss America, which he had previously killed in All-Star Squadron. So he had to kind of devise a origin. Now, keep in mind, in, in Secret Origins as well, I think uh, Uncle Sam was maybe a couple issues before this. Mm-hmm. He already has a character that is presented powers by a spirit of America, and Uncle Sam's in this story, it seems like uh, going to that uh, that trope once too often. So I think that's what made him rewrite this as a scientific origin instead of that spirit of liberty. And I don't mind that at all because even as I was reading it the first time, I'm like, okay, she's going to meet some mysterious stranger on a park bench and she falls asleep. And any other story, this is her being drugged and having this hallucination about the Statue of Liberty. But it's a revamp of a Golden Age origin, so who knows? Maybe it's going... And then by the end of it, we see that Roy Thomas does exactly that. He's like, yep, this is is his way of explaining, because 
Yeah, I went back and I read those issues of military comics, and in the first one, oh, that was a hard scene to get through. <laughs> but she's just like, yeah, I'm just, oh, I'm so tired, and it's like very overly written, and she, she looks up at the Statue of Liberty, and she's like, I wish I had the powers of Lady Liberty. It's like, what powers does Lady Liberty... Like, when in, like, the popular consciousness did we ever assume that the Spirit of Liberty had these powers to transmute things, which... And they, I think they even make a point in this one. She's like, I've never even heard of the word transmute before. Of course, because that wasn't in the lexicon back in the 1940s. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, oh, but they have the power to transmute... So, oh, so I'm just getting to this. I was like, wait a minute. This character who I'd never heard of can turn thugs into birds... She can just, like, wave her hands and all of these enemy biplanes just crash. I was like, this is way too powerful. How can this woman even be alive by the end of the story? It's like, oh, well, turns out Roy solved that problem, too. For the amount of powers that she has, it would make sense. She is way too powerful. But if they were given to her in a mystical nature, kind of like the Spectre we were talking about, I would understand that. A failed scientific experiment where you can uh, transmute men into birds and, and all kinds of things, that's a little far-fetched. So it's, it's a little bit uh, – I do like the uh, character just because it connects all those different series that I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do wish he may have told the – origin story and secret origins a little differently i don't like the part where it starts out when she first receives the powers and then it goes on and then it goes back and then it goes forward back you know the time sequence is really confusing sometimes and i think he could have he could have done that better because there are certainly there are parts of the story that we don't need that he's borrowing from other miss america golden age stories like the whole thing with ramon um that wasn't part of her first issue that wasn't part of her first appearance that was issue four. Yeah, what that was was it was just a way of getting to her first appearance in costume. But even that was never really explained. I kind of wonder, like, why that would make her so suspicious to read that somebody's just performing at uh, military bases. That was a little bit of a stretch for me because I don't know what would make her go investigate that. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think of the costume of her actual look? Uh, the finished look, I, I do like it. I mean, it's not practical, but very rarely female costumes are in comics, and male costumes aren't that practical either. But uh, I do like how it ended up. You know, later on, she keeps that look. She does appear in the Freedom Fighters in that miniseries in 2007 and 2011. She looks great in that. She, I guess she really doesn't appear, but there's an issue of Wonder Woman where Diana goes back in time and sees her mother, Hippolyta, who is the Wonder Woman in the Golden Age at that point, and she takes on the uh, the costume or the identity of Miss America so her mother doesn't recognize her. Hmm. She looked great. I mean, that costume looked great there. So I, I like the costume. It's impractical, but it's comic books. Yeah, I mean, it's I like the simplicity of it. It's, it's a slightly more flag-oriented, patriotic version of the... Um who was it? Phantom Girl. Except without Phantom Girl's, obviously, top was cut a little bit differently to accentuate her cleavage. Part of the, the good girl art that we saw. Hey, it's me. I had to acknowledge my little gaffe there. I said Phantom Girl when I actually meant Phantom Lady. Yes, big difference between the two. Okay, so, it, like, the story, I mean, you could cut this, you could cut this secret origin in half, almost. And the first half is a recap of the first couple issues of her stories in military comics. And then we get to this part where essentially this whole scene with the on the, the boats fighting in Pearl Harbor, this was from All-Star 31. 
With the Freedom Fighters? Uh, All-Star 32, I think. Okay. Uncle Sam appears in all, at the end of All-Star 31. All-Star 32, uh, they show a uh, flashback where they go uh, Uncle Sam. And we covered this in the Hour Man issue where Uncle okay. Sam uh, recruits Hour Man to go join his team because he had visions of the Pearl Harbor attack. Mm-hmm. So uh, she appears all in flashback. And they basically, I think the intent at that time was to kill everybody uh, of that first group except our man, because that's how it appears. Only later, like in this story, basically what it comes down to is the only person I think really died in that attack after all the retcons and everything was Magno, mm-hmm. the ma- magnetic man. Uh, everybody else has come back from the dead from that attack. Was that Roy's attempt to kind of create an in-story reason for why the characters never appeared after 1941, maybe? Like, did Red, Tor- Red Torpedo have any appearances in stories after that? Red P- Torpedo did. I actually have a quality companion that I got from Two Morrows. An Alter Ego magazine puts this out, and I was looking at a uh, interview uh, with Roy Thomas, the All-Star Squadron, and uh, Quality's Heroes. And basically, Roy said, you know, he needed an impact with that story. He picked some characters that were not well-known, and he did want to have a death scene. So he picked those characters, and then he didn't know at that time that Miss America had to come back to life, but other circumstances fed the necessity where he had to have that character. So basically, he did not uh, think that uh, once... He killed off these characters. Anybody else would use them because they were just so inconsequent, inconsequential. So, okay. Now the second half of the story: Uncle Sam is taken away for something, and then Miss America is taken back to the secret lab under Bedloe's Island. Which I actually I I realized like the first time I read this issue, somehow this completely slipped under my radar in all the history classes I've ever taken. I never realized that was the original name of Liberty Island. Yes. I, I knew that Liberty Island was not called that until the 1950s, but I don't think I ever knew what its original name was until I read this comic. No, I did not either. Yeah, I was like, what the heck? See, kids, comics can be education. Absolutely. Yeah. I was like, what is Bedlow's Island? I was like, oh, that must be what Liberty Island was called first. I knew it was changed in like after World War II, but I didn't know the name. So she's taken here by uh, Dr. Mazursky or Professor Mazursky, and this Agent X, and we reveal that she was basically kidnapped. So, okay, so the scientists and the the technicians involved in this, they're a little bit iffy on using a woman for this experiment. But the plan was still to kidnap somebody to use in this super soldier program. Uh, (laughs) do, Do we have a problem with this? Are we... Do do these do Mazursky and do do these characters come back in the later like young All Star story? Is this is this played out? Because I feel like there has to be a reckoning with the fact that these characters were performing these radical tests on unwilling subjects that, by their own account, killed one of the patients. Mazursky does appear in Young All Stars. He is not a good character. He's not necessarily a bad guy, but uh, he is not a very moral character in the Young All Stars. He actually, one of his uh, assistants is uh, Per Dagaton, I believe, when Per Dagaton was a lab assistant. Okay. Uh, so, you know, before, and it's confusing with Per Dagaton's uh, origin because he comes and goes, time travel. You, he always ends up as a lab assistant, it seems like. So, uh, and then. Uh, he appears later, and I did not know this until I did some research on it, as part 
part of the uh, or the one of the chiefs of the creature commandos. I guess that's what that Project M stood for. That was the beginning of the creature commandos. Uh, thought process where later on they would have some issues. I have no creature commando issues. After this, I might track them down to read them. Yeah. But uh, he's uh, apparently he appears again in that. Agent X, I have not found any other appearance of Agent X. If anybody out there knows of Agent X, because they conceal his identity, like oh, they're yeah. going to have a big reveal, and I never found out who it was. I don't know if he ever appears again. So I don't know what the purpose of concealing his identity was for. Yeah, his collar's turned up, and he's got a fedora hat on it, covered so his face is all in shadows. It definitely looks like they were setting him up to be somebody whenever they revealed it, but we don't. And on the bottom of page 18... Agent X and these other guys drop, dump her body back on the bench where she originally woke up after what she thought was this hallucination. And one of the guys says, I don't like this, Agent X. It seems almost like murder. Hmm. Yeah, no kidding. And Agent X replies, don't be a fool, man. It's for America. It's for the war effort. And that that felt like it was supposed to be a commentary of some kind, but I'm not sure what it might have been. Like, if there was some reference Roy was making to actual experiments or things that were, like, some immoral things that were done during the war effort, I, I don't know. Like, if that was supposed to be a specific commentary, I don't know what he was referring to. It just seems like a weird thing to kind of mention offhand. But. Yeah. It's a little different than Marvel Comics, where the professor takes volunteers like Steve Rogers to become a super soldier. In D.C., apparently they just kidnap people and try to turn them into soldiers. You'd have a hard time get If you kidnapped me and gave me superpowers, you would have a hard time convincing me to work for you afterwards. <laughs> exactly. I'd appreciate the superpowers, but I don't know if I'd want to take orders from you. Right. I mean, at least with the post-crisis Captain Adam, they spent a couple issues dealing with that. And her appearances in the first couple... Uh, maybe Young All-Stars 12, 13, 14. Her appearances are basically her in like a cryogenic tube. She's alive, but she's in a coma. There is a big dust-up uh, that involves a dinosaur and death bolt and, you know, fury turning into her her uh, fury of myth form. And there's a big uh, fight on Bedloe's Island, and she awakens during that fight. But uh, And then next time you see her, she's a member of the Justice Society. Did you have any other thoughts or comments on this story? No, I, it, it does sound like I wasn't a real big fan of the pacing of the story. But I think with the character, as powerful as she is, she's got to be one of the most powerful in the DC universe. Uh, uh, it comes across later in those um, Freedom Fighters miniseries in 2011. She actually gets disintegrated, blown up in outer space. She, she can travel in outer space, but she gets blown up. Of course. Her, her atoms reform, and she becomes Miss Cosmos, and she's more powerful than ever. Now, eventually, those powers fade away, uh, and she reverts back to her Miss America. By the way, she's young in 2011 because she allowed herself to age uh, so she can grow old, or she at least had the appearance of an older woman until her husband passed away, and then she reverted back to her youthful appearance. So that's how powerful this person is. And I don't know how to reconcile a character with that amount of power. Like that should in, that should intrigue all the listeners to go out and search for all of Miss America's adventures. Because if you got an extra thirty-seven minutes or whatever it's going to take <laughs> you to read through everything, it's well worth it. I mean, yeah, the fact that a character this 
with this sort of minimal of a footprint in the DC universe is still this colossal powerhouse, like unfathomable. You just said she can go out into space, but she's a patriotic-like symbol. Like I think the one of the problems is like sort of Captain America kind of defined the patriotic hero. So we think of like so many characters, like how how similar they are to him. And when you've got a character like Miss America, who Superman, Firestorm, Spectre, they ain't got nothing on her. And yet, just as easily as any woman in the Golden Age, she gets knocked unconscious with a pistol to the head. It's odd because her most, her probably most popular appearance was in that uh, out of continuity story, The Golden Age. Mm-hmm. She is present in that, and she is the girlfriend of Tex Thompson, I believe, who... Mr. America is, is also Mr. America, but who is in who uh, he had his brain cut out and he was ultra humanite. And then I think didn't they put Hitler's brain in Al Pratt's? No, not Al Pratt's body and Dan the Dynamite's body. Mm-hmm. But she's very weak in, in that uh, she was a superhero, but she's very weak and she's frightened for her life in that story. So it's out of continuity. It's a good story. You should read it. Uh, but it doesn't really match up with her being one of the most powerful people around. My last thoughts uh, about the art by Grant Meehan. Um, I like it. It's fine. Um, whenever I, I hear his name, I think of... Uh, he did a few issues of the 1992 Justice Society of America miniseries, that eight-issue miniseries. Um, and I always think of... He did the second issue, which is Black Canary versus Solomon Grundy. I knew you would like it. I, I've always liked that story. Yeah. Excellent Black Canary. Yeah. Yeah, there, I mean, there are parts of this character, parts of the story that I want to see explored. Like, even, surprising for Roy, like, when she gets on the on the ferry when she's leaving the island and we, we cut to these these guys beating up the old man for speaking in favor of democracy and against the sort of rise of fascism. In the original issue, in Military One, we get a little bit more of his speech. Um, and that's all cut out. We, when, by the time the scene begins here, he's on the ground bleeding and they're, they're ganging up on him. I, I would like to see a little bit more of that, maybe a little bit more of her working with the FBI, with Jeff Healy. I mean, it's essentially, it's essentially an Agent Carter episode um, of, the, of the current TV show, except just give Haley Atwell all of these amazing superpowers. He does. Uh, Jeff Healy does appear a lot in the. Uh, yeah. I, can't, I can't say a lot. There's only seven issues. He does appear in the Golden Age, uh, and I understand what you're saying about as far as that old man's speech in the Golden Age comics. But man, Roy Thomas packed a bunch of this issue. I was out of breath reading the recap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so it's so segmented. There's so many different parts and different like we just jump from different little scenes and different parts of it. And part of that is because her actual golden age origin, like every, every one of those chapters, she seemed to have a sort of different purpose or a different identity. So, okay. Well, I don't have any other thoughts on this specific story. Do you? No, I don't. All right. Other thoughts about the character. I mean, you you talked a little bit about where she went from here. What do you think if a recommended reading, if somebody wants to know more about Miss America, what stories should they be looking for? It's not a big fan favorite, according to everybody on Facebook, but some of the later issues of Infinity Incorporated around 47, 48, 49, 50, they do show uh, her background a little bit. And that's, I think that's the first time I really have seen where she became a member of the Justice Society, basically replacing Wonder Woman. And uh, 
I'm going to keep pitching young all-stars, but I, I think there might be three fans out there of young all-stars. But read it. It's a good comic. And if you do, if, if you have the time and you want to invest and check out some of her original Golden Age appearances, um, all of those seven stories from military comics you can find at the Digital Comic Museum. Uh, it's an online source. It has a bunch of um, public domain sources for old comics. Pretty much, if it's not DC and Marvel, um, they've got a big catalog of Golden Age comics there. So things from Quality, things from Wiz, a bunch of other books. They've got those military comics all digitized. You can read those for free. And that's where I went over this, this past week when I was looking up her Golden Age stories. They're crazy. But you know what? In those same issues, you get some Blackhawk stories. So those are fun. Yeah, Blackhawk is always fun. Unfortunately, that's... Uh, I don't know what to do with this character. She's... I, I like the look. It's a great look. I would love to see a Golden Age patriotic female hero like this. Somebody standing in for Wonder Woman. But... Ryan, like, we had to win somebody over there. <laughs> everybody Facebook Ryan and let them, how, let them know how much they love this character now and how much more research they're going to do. And, and hopefully we won a couple people over. Hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, all right. Al, thank you very much for being on the Secret Origins podcast. Um, if people want to hear more from you, your thoughts about the Golden Age comics or other superheroes or really anything else, where can people find you? Uh, I post on Facebook as Van Z, which in case people don't know is Superman's cousin, who was the second Nightwing. And I enjoyed that character so much I use him as my Facebook uh ID, but I will also be trying to uh, evolve into the podcasting community, and I'm going to try to um, single out some Golden Age issues, some maybe All Star Comics. Uh, it's a work in progress. Uh, I think I want to take more of a uh, conversational type of podcast where I just kind of give you my thoughts and how they connect with later stories. Uh, it's not going to be at the quality of Secret Origins podcast, I can tell you that. But uh, if anybody wants to be involved with that, let me know. Well, thank you, and once that is ready, I will be sure to plug that often so that people know where to find it. Al, thank you very much again for being on the show. Thank you. I enjoy it. And just like that, we are back. The Winter Hiatus was a necessary evil, but the Secret Origins podcast is back in full swing. And I'm going to start by saying the same thing I ended last episode with. I am really excited for everything that's coming up. As you heard on this episode, some of my wonderful previous guests are returning, but I've also got a whole lot of new voices to share on some crazy new stories. It's all coming up on future episodes of Secret Origins. So much has happened since the last time I talked to you in November. Most of it, very exciting. And I'll tell you all about that right after I get to your listener feedback. I know some of you have been waiting months for this, so... The Secret Origins Podcast Facebook page received 30 new likes since last time. Those likes came from Tariq Kanji... Angus Livingstone, Bill Beckman, Christopher Luke, The World's Mightiest Mortal, Captain Marvel, Mike Gillis, Dylan Worden, Ed Herman, Sebastian Gagne, Ken Rothenberg, Lucas Garrett, Emmanuel Reyes, Molly Rivera, Frank Cooper, Dean Ramos, Charlie Niemeyer, 
Doug Miller, Jay Jones, Mikey Jones, Javier, Damian Trotton, Tim Trevet, Yahir Valdez, Randy Caldwell, Christopher Cassell, Sean Dendy, Paul Mintern, Joseph Henry Feeks, Jared Reitman, and Alex Bowman. The last episode, that was episode 25, covering the Legion of Superheroes and the Golden Age Adam, that episode got Facebook likes, shares, and comments from Aaron Moss, Alan Middleton, Anthony Durso, Bradley Austin Null, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Gene Hendricks, Greg Arujo, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, Igor Glushkin, Joe Crawford, Joe Palmer, Keith G. Baker, Martin Gray, Mike Peacock, Nicholas Prom, Richard Field, Rolled Spine Podcasts, Russell Burbage, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Terry Wood, Todd Strickland, Trekker Talk, and Van Z. Twitter favorites and retweets came from Ange, Between the Pages, Comic Reflections, Film and Water Podcast, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Keith G. Baker, Mario at Luther Lang, Mark Sweeney, Martin Gray, Matthew Barton, Nathaniel Wayne, Siskoid, Sin, and Trekker Talk. On the Facebook page, Bradley Null said, I just last night finished working my way through the first 25 episodes. This series is a great snapshot of the beginnings of the Between Crisis DCU. Ryan and his guests have great discussions, even when the comic story isn't great. Thank you very much, Bradley. Um, For those of you listening, Bradley had to say that in order to appear on an upcoming episode. Moving on to the WordPress page. While the show might have been on hiatus, the comment sections sure weren't. FKA Jason finally discovered the show and worked his way through the episodes, posting comments on a lot of the old shows. I'm not going to read his comments this time, but I will do you one better, Jay. I'll give you a big plug. FKA Jason runs the Splitting Adams blog, which is devoted to Captain Adam, the character formerly owned by Charlton but acquired by DC right around the Crisis on Infinite Earths. What's even cooler than that is he and his buddy Roy Cleary have started a podcast of their own called the Silver and Gold Podcast, which covers Captain Adam, that's the silver part, and Booster Gold, that's the gold part in case you couldn't tell. The show covers the Captain Adam and Booster Gold comics from the mid-80s, right around the time of Secret Origins, in fact. It's a good show. You should definitely check it out. And the other frequent visitor who ran the faucet so the pipes didn't freeze while I was taking a break was, of course, Diablo Frank, who continued to post chapters from his doctoral thesis in the form of comments. I'm not going to read them all on this show because that would be the end of the podcast forever, but I did want to highlight one of Frank's comments on Dr. Fate. He was talking about Fate's inaccessibility and came up with a new take that I really like because it draws a clear line between someone like Dr. Fate and a character like Dr. Strange. Frank said, He's a magical Arthurian crusader. He's the Siegel and Schuster Superman, but instead of rocketing from a doomed planet, he raided the artifacts of an extinct culture. Where Dr. Strange owes more to Merlin, Dr. Fate is the Green Knight. He's a superhero first, a dragon slayer who happens to use spells in place of raw physical force. Strange is a scholar who pours over forbidden ancient tomes and navigates pan-dimensional political squabbles. Dr. Fate is a latter-day noble who is told by the Lords of Order to burn Sanctum Sanctorums to the ground, library and all, then shove an Ankh-shaped energy bolt down the throat of an agent of chaos. 
Dr. Fate shouldn't be about Arcanum and head trips. He should be the Golden Age spawn. Nathaniel Wayne should be judging whether he's guilty of 1940s whiz-banginess. He's the morally unambiguous, non-terrifying, but still intimidating, rescues the maidens, and kicks the supernaturally evil asses version of the Spectre. Now, that is a version of Dr. Fate I would like to see. On to the latest episode, Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast complimented the guests, Martin Gray and Gene Hendricks, saying, Another winning episode. So nice to put a voice to the online presence of the charming Martin Gray. His Too Dangerous for a Girl blog is probably the most reliable and trustworthy source of opinions on DC Comics. And always good to hear Gene again. Paul also said, No Legion recommendation for me, as you seem to be on the right path. I will put in a good word for Legion, that's the acronym L-E-G-I-O-N with periods between them, if you're feeling ready to meet Vril Dox, the best anti-hero the DC Universe has ever known. Thank you very much for the comment, Paul Hicks. As always, you should all be listening to his Waiting for Doom podcast, dedicated to the Doom Patrol. It's a whole lot of fun. Martin Gray commented on the Adam segment, saying, Really enjoyed hearing you and Gene talk about the Golden Age Adam. It is funny that, as you say, he wore a full face mask, yet no fingerprint covering gloves. Add in the fact that, unless there were loads of 5 foot 1 inch guys running around saving college crimes back then, his height is a giveaway, all of which lends credence to the idea that the costume isn't for disguise. Nope, the costume is for excitement. Never mind wrestling, that is pure fetish wear. Crotch emphasizing, leather shorts connected to the leather harness, matching wristbands, executioner-style mask. The creators were fair begging for a 21st century reading by, er, sophisticated minds. Why did Joe never leave the apartment? He was building the dungeon. (laughs) A new commenter named Uncle Screensaver said, I've never once thought about the Atom as being gay and being into BDSM, nor even about him being a bear until now. I don't know if you deserve a smack or a round of applause. This, um, insight reads like something we'd find in Watchmen. In any case, now I have a new hero to, uh, dream about. You know, that's really my secret wish for every episode of this podcast, to give people new fantasies. Uh, Dr. Ainge from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, Thanks for getting Mart on the show. After years of friendship, it was great to put a voice to a name. I echo a lot of what he has to say about the Legion. It is such a great property when done well. Ange continued, My favorite Legionnaire is Wildfire. He has a great power set of strength and energy blasts. He also had a bit of a temper, which was novel for a hero back then. Lastly, he had relationship issues. He is bodiless, after all, wondering if he could ever be lovable, if the girl of his dreams would ever reciprocate his feelings. It is a bit juvenile, a sort of riff on the Ange of high school who wondered if the girls would ever notice him. Well, Ange, you've got a couple kids, so I'm assuming somebody noticed you. Uh, Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, I've always liked the Legion more from afar than from practical collecting slash active reading, but somehow I've amassed quite a bit of Legion knowledge. I blame who's who. Speaking of which, Rick Stacy did some of the who's who artwork in the back of the 89 DC annuals. Am I wrong remembering he had some sort of staff job at DC at one point? Um, I would put that question to former guest Greg Arujo, who knows Rick Stacy. Perhaps he could answer that one for us. Chris adds, 
I always liked Wildfire's costume, but for some reason I've always really liked Lightning Lad. I just liked that Grell-designed look, and even the classic costume with the cape was cool. When I was getting those Legion reprints and Adventure Comics digests, he was my favorite. My other favorite is Mon-El, and it's all due to that origin story. The fact that Superman had a brother blew my young mind. Jeff Nettleton said, My favorite Legionnaires were always Wildfire and Timberwolf. Wildfire has the great costume, powers, and the mercurial personality, and he was featured heavily in the Grell period. Timberwolf was Wolverine before Wolverine. He tread a middle ground between wild animal and rational being, and was one of the best fighters, as showcased in Legion of Superheroes 287, where he is part of the Legion Espionage Squad, which infiltrates the Kund homeworld. They end up in combat with the baddest Kundian gladiator who Timberwolf takes apart in a few moves. Uh, then continuing, this story is a fine intro to the classic origin of the team, and it hints at the grandeur that would follow. Remember, this was a team where members died, which meant you had to pay attention, unlike other teams. Members dated, got married, got kicked off the team, and rejoined. It had something more than your average superhero comic. It also encouraged its fandom, with voting of the next Legion leader and the like. You did, on occasion, have to tolerate some less-than-great stories while you waited for the good stuff to come around. And thank you, Jeff, for that comment. Thank you, Chris Franklin, earlier. Uh, Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water and Film and Water podcast said he loved the cover of Secret Origins 25, saying, There's something very charming about a hall of heroes that future superheroes can go and visit. The Aquaman wing is to the left. Rob also commented on something from the feedback for episode 24. The Blue Devil Summer Fun Annual is fantastic. It's worth picking up. It affectionately goofs on most of DC's supernatural characters when almost at the exact same time some of them were appearing in the Swamp Thing Annual number 2, written by Alan Moore, making for a real Alpha Omega dynamic. Siskoid from the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast posted a link to the Legion of Superblogger site where he explained why he loved the Legion. There, I compare it to other wide-expansive universes like those of Doctor Who and Star Trek, the kind of niche that, as a collector, I will always love. Because we collect trivia, we collect all the pieces of a universe, and the more you have to collect, the more satisfaction you derive from it. I often scoff at mainstream Star Wars fans who are so devoted to six films, three of which are often denied, whereas my fandoms require me to watch 700 to 900 separate pieces of TV and film even before I have to go extra-canonical. The Legion is like that because there are no recognizable touchstones, no New York, no 7-Elevens. It's all invented and exists in a crazy, oft-rebooted continuity. To be a Legion expert is a difficult, confusing, and ultimately impressive enterprise. That is excellently stated, Siskoid, and I completely agree with that. Nathaniel Wayne from 90s Comics Retrial said of the Atom, This Golden Age version is quite the oddity. I hear that name and can't divorce it from the Silver Age atomic technology-inspired version. The Atom is just a strong short guy. Seems weird even for the times. And given where gay culture was at the time the 1980s rolled around, I can't imagine that the writers, artists involved were oblivious to what could be read into all of this. I suspect they just had to be sure that it could still be read without that context for those who wouldn't be able to process the notion, even as a joke. Uh, on the last episode, I mentioned that the Legion works for me as a cross between Harry Potter and Star Trek. Jeff R. said, While I find the idea of the Ranses as the Weasleys strangely compelling, I'm not sure that emphasizing the teen heroes aspect of the Legion is really the way to go. 
the best runs for the team were, hands down, the second Levitt's era, to which the Great Darkness saga belongs, in which the characters were well into young adulthood, with several married couples, and the first year of the five years after version. And the series has been rebooted again and again, each time going back to that team concept and never taking. I think that is because the best Legion stories have to use the more mature form of the team. Jeff added, favorite Legionnaire has to be Brainiac 5. Between being the ignored smartest person in the room and the idea of a hero descended, although it would be years before anyone figured out how that could actually work, from a supervillain, he just always appealed to me. Second pick would be Polar Boy for his sheer perseverance. Diablo Frank from the World Spine Network talked at length about the Adam story, asking like 60 questions that chipped away at the structural integrity of the story. After that, Frank said, For once, I'm not on the Mo train with Al Pratt. I think this is a case of changing times, as there was greater comfort with male intimacy back in the 1930s. Folks didn't even necessarily know there was such a thing as homosexuality, so there was no need to watch out for it or overcompensate so as not to send mixed signals. Joe was desperate and grateful for the help, while Al had no other friends and was being broken down and rebuilt from scratch. Circumstances and the bonding they elicited explained their relationship. On the other hand, the Adam totally looks like a bondage freak. His costume constitutes beefcake fan service, and Al would be much more interesting than he is if he weren't a sad, obvious, homogenic, cisgender dude. Frank added, as I've said before and likely will again, I like Ray Palmer a lot, but I couldn't care much less about Al Pratt. It's funny that the two share a motivation and a name, but the ties of legacy are much weaker between them than other gold-slash-silver generational heroes. And finally, the last comment came from a new listener, Doc Quantum, who was talking about one of the uh, Millennium tie-in episodes. Uh, Doc Quantum said, Great podcast. I just subscribed over a week ago and have already burned through all the episodes. It's just that good. I'm far more familiar with the pre-crisis and pre-2000s DC Universe than the current comics, so I was hoping Ryan would explain a bit about what he likes about the current versions of the Manhunters. He mentioned a few times that he prefers the current versions, but never explains what makes them different. First, thank you for the comment, Doc, and thanks for being a fan of the show. Welcome. And second, the modern version of the Manhunters that were kind of reimagined by Jeff Johns, they're more overtly robotic. They don't look like just people wearing blue masks. And I am a sucker for killer robots like Ultron or the Terminator. Uh, these new Manhunters also have batteries built into their heads that drain the Green Lantern's ring energy, which makes them more dangerous as villains. The Manhunters were a big part of Jeff Johns' first year on Green Lantern, and that's one of my favorite superhero runs, between Rebirth and the Sinestro Corps, when Johns was doing a lot of world-building and repurposing, but before every color in the visible light spectrum got its own army. So, I would go back to that, especially like the first three issues of Johns' Green Lantern. He's got a really cool Manhunter story that is very fun to like. That made me a fan of that enemy. And that is going to be it for the listener feedback section. Once again, as always, I want to reiterate how much I love the support I get for this show. You guys are all terrific. Thank you so much. Hopefully, I didn't lose too many fans during my absence. Heaven knows there is no shortage of great podcasts out there. In fact, some new shows have sprung up just in the last couple months. I already mentioned the Silver and Gold podcast by FKA Jason and Roy. The next one I just discovered last week is Feathers and Foes, a Birds of Prey podcast. Yes, somebody is finally covering the Birds of Prey from their beginning so that I don't have to. 
This is a fantastic show. The hosts, Ashford and Leah, have a great rhythm, a pretty fresh take. There's there's just a great energy to the show, and they're talking about Oracle and Black Canary, so you know it's good stuff. Uh, there's a couple of new Superman-related podcasts that just started recently. The first is the Superman Captain Marvel Power Hour, hosted by our good buddy Kyle Benning. In the first episode, Kyle talks about the animated short Superman and Shazam, The Return of Black Adam. And in subsequent episodes, he's going to talk about individual stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Mightiest Mortal. Sort of like what I'm going to be doing on Power of Fishnets, except Kyle picked two superheroes that people actually want to hear about. (laughs) Sucker. The other new show is the Giant Superman Podcast, hosted by John M. Wilson and Bob Fisher. That's going to cover Superman's Silver Age adventures in annuals and other extra-large stories. I recommend both of these shows, and both Kyle and John will be joining me on future episodes of Secret Origins. And the most recent new podcast that is very, very near and dear to my heart, you heard Al mention it on this episode, the show is official, the All-Star Comics Review Podcast. Al is going through the classic Golden Age All-Star Comics, telling the stories of Hawkman, The Flash, The Spectre, Sandman, all the classic heroes that would eventually become the Justice Society. You know... Al made his podcast debut as a last-minute fill-in on Secret Origins, and now he's hosting his own show. And it's good. I'm proud, and he should be too. Go download it. The All-Star Comics Review Podcast. Okay, what else? Oh, there's a ton of great new content coming out of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. That's right, Rob and Shag's Private Madness is now a full-blown network. You can find all of their shows, the Fire & Water Podcast, the Film & Water Podcast, Hero Points, Power Records, Who's Who, and the highly anticipated upcoming Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. You can subscribe to the network feed and get all of them, or pretty soon you'll be able to subscribe to those shows individually. But that's barely half of the Fire & Water network. Chris and Cindy Franklin's Supermates podcast is part of the network, as is the Lonely Hearts Romance podcast, hosted by Siskoid and the Canadians. Siskoid and his co-host Bass also launched a new show called First Strike, which covers the crossover event Invasion. And Siskoid has also started a new show called Ohatmu or Not, where he and a coven of women debate the relative sex appeal of characters listed in the official handbook of the Marvel. Universe. It's like all the best parts of Sex in the City, which is none, plus a moderator and monsters from Marvel. It's awesome. You gotta download that. It's such a fun show. And of course, my humble contribution to the Fire and Water Network, which will include two brand new ish shows coming later this month. The first is Give Me Those Star Wars, which you can probably assume is a Star Wars podcast. My old Star Wars show, Dead Bath and Spies, is retired. Give Me Those Star Wars is all new, but still covers all aspects of Star Wars fandom, new and old, from the movies to the toys to the ever-expanding universe of comics and novels. The other new show is Power of Fishnets, spinning out of flowers and fishnets, my Black Canary podcast. The new show, Power of Fishnets, will cover the comics starring both Black Canary and the Mistress of Magic herself, Zatanna. Look for both of those shows later this month. Then there's this show. Secret Origins Podcast is now part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. I mean, it seemed only fair after stealing so many listeners and guests from Rob and Shag that I brought the show back to where it belongs. 
Now, if you're already subscribed to the show on iTunes or Stitcher or some other podcast feeder, nothing should change. New episodes should download automatically as always, but you should also be able to get this show through the Fire & Water Network feed. The website for the show is also going to change. The Facebook page will stay the same, but I'm not going to post new content for the WordPress page anymore. Instead, if you want to leave comments for the show, you can post them at fireandwaterpodcast.com. There you will also be able to find scanned images from this issue of Secret Origins. As of now, posts for the old episodes of Secret Origins are not up on the Fire and Water website, but that will happen eventually. And that finally is going to wrap up this episode of Secret Origins Podcast. It's great to be back, and now pay attention because a little bit of my canned outro is going to sound different this time. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com backslash secretorigins or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send me an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. You don't know what you do till you put on a pressure. Cross 110th Street is a hell of a tester. Across 110th Street Pimps trying to catch a woman that's weak Across 110th Street Pushers won't let the junkie go free Across 110th Street Woman trying to catch a trick on the street You get